Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. I am so glad that you're here for the first week of our prayer series. For the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about it because it was a big deal to Jesus. So when he was walking around on the face of this earth, his disciples got to watch him do a lot of things. Now, they shared a common heritage, a common religious experience. They grew up in a culture where prayer was a normal part of all of their lives. It was normal for Jesus. It was normal for the disciples. They would stop three times a day, and they would pray, and prayer wasn't unusual for them. It didn't feel foreign. It was something they were comfortable with. But when the disciples watched Jesus pray, something was different. So one day, as they're going about what they do, the disciples looked at Jesus, and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, what was interesting about that request that they made of him was is they already knew how to pray. They had learned as children how to pray. Most every young man that grew up in that culture, they started off very early. Here's a couple things that was interesting about them. They started off very early learning the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They started off memorizing those books of the Bible. Every young boy did that. And they started off learning by memory a lot of the Psalms, the book of the Bible that we call the Psalms. There's 150 divisions of the Psalm, and they would memorize. And those words from the first five books of the Bible and the book of Psalms became their prayers. So the disciples knew how to pray. But there was something different about the way Jesus prayed. There was something different. It captured their attention. It stoked their interest. It was mysterious and odd and different and at the same time powerful and passionate the way Jesus prayed. And so in response to the, to the request, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus does that. And he gives them what we call, if you're Catholic, the Our Father. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus prayed. But what's a better title for that prayer is probably the Disciples' Prayer. It was certainly the prayer Jesus prayed, but it was the prayer he used to teach his disciples how to pray. And when I was a kid, I was made to memorize that prayer. And most every night before we went to bed, we would say the Our Father. And my parents weren't even Catholic. We just did it. That's what we did. We prayed the Our Father, and we would do that. And then at the end of it, before we would say amen, there'd be a little moment there that either my mom or my dad would kind of pray kind of spontaneously. But we were just waiting for them to be done so we could get on with whatever it is we wanted to do before bedtime, right? That's kind of the way it went. So I knew the Our Father, but I didn't realize until much later on in my life as a follower of Jesus that that prayer was to be more than just memorized. It's good to memorize it. It's fine. But it wasn't really a prayer to be memorized to be repeated. That really wasn't the point. The point was this prayer would teach us how to pray. Now, most of us know a little bit about prayer. Like maybe you know a little bit about praying over the meal, uh, you know, before you eat. There's a handful of prayers there that you can use, and those are fine. Most of us know the kind of prayer that you pray maybe at a, well, used to at least, at a sporting event, before a sporting event. Sometimes they would do that sort of thing. And some of us know the kind of prayers you pray at special meetings, or maybe you make the kind of prayers we pray at a church. And most everybody knows a little bit about praying when you're in deep need. Like you just, you know, throw up the, the past, give it to God. I like the old cowboy prayers where they kind of walk out into the 
night air and they'd look up at the sky and they'd say something like, well, sir, it's been a long time since we've chatted. And if you could just kind of do me a big one, you know, they just kind of talk to him. So we've seen prayer. We've seen it in our movies. You've seen other people do it. But what we're going to do today for a few minutes is I'm going to walk you through the Lord's Prayer. Not as a prayer to be memorized, although you can and perhaps you should. But as a model prayer for all the disciples of Jesus to pray. And so in your message notes, it looked like this. On the front of it, it's about, it there's information about financial peace, uh, everything you need to know about the offering we're doing here is right there on the front. But inside, there are some sermon notes that you can follow along if you want to grab your pen. And I wanted to alert you so that you're not totally surprised. We're going to blow through this material pretty quickly. Um, it's not complicated. For some of you, it might be new. Others, this will be review. But when we get done with this, we're going to take some next steps like we do every week. And then we're going to actually practice this. Don't worry. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to do anything. I'll, I'll do it. I'm actually going to show you. Um, how I do my morning prayers uh, and, and, and kind of walk you through that model. Um, because I, I think that most of us would like to pray more. I mean, the disciples certainly had prayer as a part of their lives, but they wanted to be able to engage their heavenly Father in prayer like Jesus did. They wanted to be able to do that, and I think this prayer will help us do that. But I want to start off with you the, with a verse that's not in your message notes. In Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 35. It's just a little snippet of Jesus' life. This is what the disciples were observing. So in Mark 1.35, here's what our Bible says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And they saw him do this a lot. Like he would break routine, and he would just talk to God as if he believed God was listening. He would talk to God when he had need and when he was troubled, and he would just talk to God when he wasn't. He just talked to God, and they got to watch a lot of this. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, there on your message notes, uh, the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer is found in two places in your Bible, in Luke and in Matthew, all right? And so in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, that's an interesting phrase, in a certain place. <laughs> the place of prayer, in one sense, doesn't matter. You can pray anywhere. But Jesus seemed to separate himself from the crowd. He would go to a solitary place. He would go to a certain place. And it's as if he carved out space to pray. There were some grandmas in the church that I grew up in, and they were what we used to call prayer warriors. They were small in stature, and often their backs were a little hunched over. But when they would begin to pray, it was like they were giants before God and whatever they were facing. And if you were going through something, you wanted them to pray for you. That's the way it worked. You know, you knew they could touch God. And they, all of them, paid attention to the place that they went to pray. They would carve out space to pray. So on that day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And for the next few minutes, we're going to walk through that prayer. Now, this prayer isn't found um, in the Old Testament. It's not like Jesus was repeating one of the prayers he had learned before. What he's going to do is walk them through about seven principles. 
seven patterns of prayer that I think anybody in this room could follow. And that's why I've given it to you in written form. You could actually take this piece of paper home and open it up and with using some of the words Jesus used and using your own words, you could kind of pray in the way that Jesus taught disciples to pray, all right? So here's the prayer in its entirety in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You say hallowed, you have to make it an extra syllable. You could say hallowed, but you wouldn't be as spiritual. Uh, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory Forever. This is the longer version. Luke has a slightly shorter version that leaves off the phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And in a Catholic church, if you're praying the Our Father, you do the Luke version, then the priest prays a little bit, and then he closes up with the ending from Matthew, right? You've probably been to a wedding or a, a three-hour wedding or a funeral or something like that, all right? I'm not making fun. It's just... They do a great job of keeping this in front of people, and that's awesome. Prayer should be a part of our lives. But it wasn't just a prayer to be memorized. We're going to discover some of that right now, all right? So let me give you the first point, and then we'll talk about it. One of the things that captured the disciples' attention as they watched Jesus pray, as they heard him pray, is he talked to God as if God was not way out there somewhere. He talked to God as if God was kind of like right here. As if he was close, as if he was near, and not just as if he was close and near physically, but as if they were close to each other. And in English, the prayer begins, our Father in heaven, or if you're a King James guy like I memorized it, our Father which art in heaven, all right? Is the word Father there translated into English from Aramaic, the word there is Abba, Abba. Our father, Abba, it was the the way that children would address their dad when there was closeness. Its best translation really is daddy. And so our first point then is that Jesus connected with God relationally. And in prayer, we're asked to connect with God as if there is a relationship that is healthy and good and close and personal. Our father in heaven. It doesn't sound as spiritual, but you could just as easily say, Daddy God, or Dad in heaven. Again, it almost sounds as if it's not quite kosher to address God as Dad, but that's one of the things that captured the attention of the disciples as they heard Jesus pray. He talked to God as if they knew each other. When I was first starting out in ministry and I had the good fortune of working with some incredible mentors. They were each of them men of prayer. And I remember sitting down with one guy saying, hey, when I hear you pray, like you pray interestingly. He was like, what do you mean? I said, well, first of all, you start funny. And I was pushing the envelope just a little bit. He said, what do you mean? Here's the way he would start his prayers. And and I picked up on this. Now, I know not to do it in front of most people because it kind of throws them a little bit. But he would start his prayers and he would say, not our father or Heavenly Father, he would start it very personally. He would say, my father, my father. 
And when I first heard him do it, I was like, you can't do that. that that's not the way you begin a prayer. But what his point was is he was very much personalizing it. And so if he was with some people he was close to, if he was trying to show his understudies how to connect with God in prayer, he, he got rid of all the formality and he made it very personal. And that's really what Jesus was inviting his disciples to do right here. Our Father in heaven. Now what's cool about this is the Apostle Paul, in his writings a little bit later on, he's going to pick up on the theme. So in Romans chapter 8, Verse 15, Paul writes the same concept this way. And now he's writing to Christians, all right? So in case you think this is weird stuff to be so familiar with God, he says, listen, guys, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. You're not a slave to fear. We sing that song around here. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, Daddy Father, Abba. All right? God loves for us to call him father. This is one of the reasons why there's such an attack on men in our culture, I believe, in the world. Whether it's America today or in the past, there's an attack on the image of father. It's God's preferred title. It's how you, he wants us to relate to him most of all. And what we have to do often to do that is get rid of a perverted or broken notion of what a father is in this world. Because there's a lot of heartache and a lot of hurt around the concept of fatherhood. Abandoned kids, dads who let us down. Even the best dads weren't perfect dads. And there's always hurt. And God says to us, I want you to see me not as an earthly father bound by limitations, but as a heavenly father who has the capacity to love when earthly fathers wouldn't be able to do it. A capacity to absorb all of the crud of your life when an earthly father would feel overwhelmed. This part of the prayer, our father in heaven, that short phrase helps us establish an intimate relationship with him. And when we're praying in a minute, you're going to see, and I'm going to invite you to participate through the week as you move forward from here, to use that phrase to thank God for the relationship that you have for him. So when I'm praying in the mornings, I don't typically quote the Lord's Prayer, but I often start by saying, God, I want to thank you that I can come to you today, that you know me, you know my name. I'm not one of the millions of kids you have. I'm a special kid to you. You know me. You know my favorite color. You know what I like. You know what I don't like. And you know what's going on in my day past that's bringing to me. And you know what's going to happen in the future. That's how well you know me because we're connected. When I start praying like that, it opens up to me a vulnerability and and an honesty in my prayer that I don't have if I don't acknowledge the relationship that God made possible with him. It's, parents, you know this. You know it because you were a kid and you had a kid. When there's deep trust and your kids aren't fearful, they gush whatever's going on in their life. And if they're afraid, if there's a little fear of what will happen, that's when they start lying to you like the devil himself living inside of them. Right? You've seen that happen, right? Kids will lie to you, won't they? Well, what's what's that about? Well, there's something going on. They're fearful. When we acknowledge the relationship with God, it allows an honesty to just flow from us. So our Father in heaven. Let me give you the second one. Here's the second principle. Worship his name. 
that won't mean as much to us because we didn't grow up as Jewish young men and young women. But in that culture, a name was sacred. It was a big deal. It was a big deal to be given a name. So they would go to great pains to try to pick a name that would elevate the value and the status of the person to whom the name was given. In the last few weeks, we've talked about Elijah, one of the guys we talked about in our last sermon series. And his name means the Lord is God. And his life kind of reflects that, right? A a few months ago, I talked to you about the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. And his name means he who wrestles with God. And in his little letter in our Old Testament, he wrestles with the Lord and what's going on in his life. The names take on big meanings. The name Jesus means literally Savior, Yeshua. Yeshua, Savior, he saves. And that's the role he played. And in the Bible, the name of God is very important. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 there in your message notes. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. These are David's words talking about not just the one name of the Lord. Here's what's cool about the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. God is given a primary name. In our Bible, it's translated Jehovah, right? The Lord, like the one Lord, the one over all, the Lord, Jehovah. That's how we kind of translate it into English. It's probably probably better pronounced Yahweh, but if you're Jewish, you don't say that name. It's too holy to say it. So the name Jehovah was used over and over and over again in our Old Testament, but then often there was kind of like an adjective modifier to describe the kind of Lord that he was. I want to walk through some of those. In fact, I have them for you right there in your message notes. If you look at uh, at the line, there was the Jehovah who is our righteousness. In Hebrew, it would sound a bit like this, Jehovah Sidkenu. Sidkenu is the Hebrew word. And it, it meant the, the Lord is our righteousness. And so David prays to God in the Psalms. And he says, Lord, you're our righteousness. We're not righteous in ourselves. You're the righteous one. And we just get to be connected to your righteousness. Or the Lord who is our sanctifier, the Lord who calls us and sets us apart. That phrase is Jehovah Kadosh, Jehovah Kadosh. All the way through the Old Testament. Let me give you a few more just running down the, the list. The Lord who is our healer. He heals my hurt and my, deceive, my, my diseases. That's Jehovah Rapha. The Lord who is my banner of victory. The one who declares victory. He's defeated my enemy. He's Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my shepherd. When David wrote those words in Psalm 23, it was Jehovah. And then the next phrase wasn't shepherd as if it was simply his role. It's actually his name. Jehovah Roi, Jehovah Roi, the Lord is my peace. Perhaps you know this word, it's Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is my peace. The Lord who is my provider, Jehovah Jireh, he provides all of my needs. And when Jesus said to the disciples, hey, you can pray this way, our Father in heaven, holy or hallowed or special or set apart is your name. He was inviting them to think on all the names of God contained in the Old Testament. Over a hundred different references to the kind of God that the Lord is. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're invited to think about the multidimensional 
engagements that God has with us and all the roles he plays in the world. What does it mean for him to be Lord in every area of our life? Holy is your name. Let's move on to the next one. The next phrase in the disciples' prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is number three there, an invitation for us to pray God's agenda first, to pray his agenda first. Now my favorite verse in all the Old Testament, a verse that spoke to me when I was about 17 years old and left a mark on my life to such a degree that if you get a correspondence from me today, I probably sign it with my name in Matthew 6.33. Here's what that verse says. Seek first God's kingdom. That's the priority. God first. What God wants first. When you do that, the verse tells us, all the other stuff of life, that's the context of that verse, all the other stuff of life, what you eat, what you wear, where you're going to live, all the other stuff of life is going to be added to you if you seek God first. And so when the Lord tells his disciples to pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, God, he's saying to the disciples, Hey, guys, pray to God this way. God, your will first. You first, me second. What you want, that gets the priority. That sets the tone. We'll deal with my stuff in a minute. And it begs the question then, what's important to God? Let me, you might want to write this down. If you read the Bible, here's some things that always come to the top of the list for God. You want to know what God's priorities are? Like, he really wants to help you make sure you get a good parking spot. He really does. When you're driving through Kroger... Like, that's a big deal to him, but there's some things that are more important than that, all right? Here they are. Number one, God is all about saving lost people. That's his first priority. That's the reason we have the Bible anyway. That's why he sent Jesus anyway. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish. God's number one agenda is to bring all of his kids home. He wants to save kids that are lost. Welcome his family back. His second big agenda, crystal clear in the scriptures. God wants to guide those who have authority and influence. He wants to guide them. So over and over in the Bible, you see parental authority, governmental authority, authority in the workplace and in the culture and in the society. You see those things getting prayed for and valued by God and God getting intricately involved in those things. And he gives one of the Ten Commandments to parental authority. And so we're encouraged to pray for those in authority. It's a big deal to God. To pray for those who rule us. That God would give them wisdom. That they would be righteous people. That they would have integrity. That they would lead the country in a, in a way that honors God and benefits people. That, that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. To God. Let me give you one more big deal to God. God thinks it's a really big deal. And he spends a lot of effort through the scripture in the world. Number three, setting the priorities and the direction for our lives, for your life. So if you want to pray God's will, when you pray for lost people to come to God, God, I'm worried about my kids. Like, I know they have a relationship, but it doesn't seem that, they don't seem that interested in it right now. You're praying the heart of God. Like, you're, you're praying in agreement with the will of God. God, I'm praying for my neighbor. I don't know what's going on, but I know there's some stuff going on over there. and I don't know it all, but God, would, would you do your work in that, in that home? Would you draw them to you? 
When you pray like that, you're praying the will of God. You don't have to wonder about that. God, would you direct our Congress and would you direct our president? And Lord, would you direct those who, who lead a local? When you pray like that, you're praying the very heart of God. And when you pray, God, direct my life. Your word says that the steps of a righteous person are ordered by you. Would you, would you direct my life? When you pray like that, you're praying God's priorities, right? Uh, look at Psalm 121. David writes these words. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I skipped down. Number four, just totally blew that. Number four, here we go. The word is depend. Depend on him for everything. Depend on him for everything. That's the fourth principle. And the phrase from the prayer is give us our daily bread. So now, Psalm 121, verse 1 through 2. David writes these words. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from the mountains? No. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In another place, one of the prophets wrote these words. Some look to chariots. Some look to horses. Some look to armies. But I look to the Lord who is my strength. This is an invitation in this part. God give us our daily bread to acknowledge that he is the source of all that we need. And it's an invitation for us to ask God for what we need. So here I, I gave you the phrase, ask God for what you want and what you need, and then trust him for the answer. There's a kind of a country song that isn't about dogs and broken relationships and pickup trucks. It's about, it's about God not answering every prayer. Thank God for unanswered prayers. That's a legitimate theological point. Your heavenly father who loves you wants to hear all that you want, but he tends to only give us what we need because he's good. He's not just nice. He's good. He's not just pleasant. He's wise. So he doesn't give us everything we want. And in this prayer, we're invited to ask for anything, but then trust him for what we need. Number five, this is an invitation for us to get our hearts right with God. Now, by the way, there's good theology in this. Notice, already we've been able to talk to God like we're close. Already we've been able to pray and partner in God with the priorities in his life. Already we've been able to talk about what we want. But it's somewhere near the end of the prayer that Jesus finally says, all right, let's deal with your heart. Now, it's not because your heart's unimportant. It's because the behaviors of your life, they don't put distance between you and God immediately. Like, they'll make you feel distant, but they actually draw God in. But when we start praying about how awesome God is and all the ways his, who he is touches our life and the fact that he loves us so much we can call him dad. And when we start praying like that, what's supposed to happen is, is it's supposed to well up in us a sense of joy, gratitude, and ultimately like, all right, I know what you're doing, God. Now, what about me? What about me? And in this place, we're invited along with the disciples that Jesus was talking to when he gave them these principles we're invited to deal with our own stuff. So look at the words here. Forgive us our debts. You could say trespasses, either one, as we forgive our debtors. Forgive what we owe and forgive those, uh, even as we forgive those who owe us. And I like the way the apostle John, who heard Jesus teach this prayer, unpacked these words, this thought of Jesus in 1 John 1, 9. And this, these words are to Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
This is an invitation asking God to check our hearts and our motives. It allows us to receive forgiveness for any area that he brings to mind. And it pushes us to forgive anyone who has offended us in any way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. All right, number six. We're encouraged to engage a spiritual battle. Now, this is awkward to talk about in our culture. We're so focused on what we can see and smell and taste and touch and hear that we forget sometimes there's an unseen world that in my mind, as I've learned, is sometimes more real, in fact, is more real than even all the stuff that we can sense with our natural senses. And there's actually a battle for your life. That shows up in the prayer in Jesus' words here. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, as you set my steps, get me as far away from temptation as possible. And deliver me from any plan the evil one has against us. The Apostle Paul picked up on these words in Ephesians chapter 6. Look at the words there. Here's what he says to followers of Jesus. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of, the, of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul saying, look, I know you experience it as just a hard day or a hard season you're going through, but actually, if you could peek behind the curtain, there's a battle for you, for your heart, for your mind, for your purpose, for your resources, for your energy. And there's multiple agendas. There's gods and everything else. God's agenda and everybody else's agenda. And everybody else's agenda that doesn't line up with God ultimately lines up with the one whose whole purpose for you is to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's evil personified. And so the best translation here is a very definitive, the evil one. There's a, there's a devil who doesn't like you. And all the stuff that falls away from God, that doesn't fit under God's category, goes into that category. And we're asked to acknowledge that and to live our lives not in fear of it, but acknowledging that there really is a struggle. And if we're not careful, we're going to trip. That's the metaphor the Bible uses. You and I will get tripped up. Another metaphor it uses is we'll be walking around, and when we pass a corner, there's a lion there waiting to pounce on us. You've got to be careful. And how are we careful? In our own strength? No, not in our strength alone. And so how does the enemy of our soul work? Primarily through lies. Those lies come in two ways. He tries to tell you that what God says isn't true. God says you're forgiven. He says you're not forgiven. God says you've been redeemed. He says, ah, eh, you're partially redeemed. God says you have a purpose. He says you'll never achieve your purpose. God says you can do all things as Christ strengthens you towards the purpose to which God has called you. And the enemy says you won't be able to do the thing God's called you to do because you don't have enough. That's one way. Very direct assault. The other way the enemy works through lies is he'll use truth before a deceptive purpose. He'll say to you something like, you really can't do that. And it's true except it's not complete. When Paul was dealing with that particular thought, I already quoted the verse. He says, I can do all things, not by myself, but through Christ who strengthens me. The enemy will say, you failed, 
I've, I'm learning in my life to acknowledge those things that are true, but not believe all the implication of them that the enemy will whisper in my ear. Then you failed. You're never going to be able to do it. No, well, you're right, I failed. But I have an advocate with the Father, 1 John 1, 9 tells me. I have an advocate with the Father who makes my sins forgived Forgiven fully because of the blood of Jesus. And if I confess them. So yeah, I failed, but I'm also forgiven. And sometimes I have found just agreeing with, the, with what the enemy whispers in your ear. This is too big for you. It, it is. You're right. It is too big. But it's not too big for God. So sometimes he'll lie at you directly. In other ways, he'll lie at you by telling you the truth, but trying to lead you in the wrong direction with it. And this is an invitation for us to deal with that. So just, I want to state it again because I think God has done something special in our church and still has work to do around this idea. Back to the Romans passage that we are not slaves to fear. You can press forward. And in this prayer, God invites us to acknowledge that struggle. Every lie that the evil one has told should be replaced with the truth of God. This is why I want you to read your Bibles because you can use the word of God to speak back to the one who's the enemy of your soul. Number seven, this is an invitation for us to express faith in God's ability. Express faith in God's ability. When Jesus told his disciples this phrase, he was asking them not just to repeat it, but to understand what it meant. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. God, you have the ability. So that's why the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament writes these words. Ah, sovereign Lord. You've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Look at this phrase. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Why? Because you have the kingdom. You're the king, man. You're the Lord of lords, the king of kings. You have all the power. You have all the glory. It's an invitation for us to end our prayer time by reminding ourselves of God's ability. And whatever we've talked to about To him in that time, he's capable. He can be depended on. He's trustworthy. It allows us to focus on his strengths and to declare the truth about him and the world. We get to hear ourselves speak the truth. The enemy whispers lies. The world will lie to you. People will hurt you. But in this prayer time, we get the ability to speak the truth of God in the world that God created. And it emboldens us. Yours is the kingdom. All rule belongs to you. Yours is the power. All might flows from you. Yours is the glory. Your victory is going to be complete. One day, this world is going to go away, and I'm going to stand with you face to face, and you're going to be the winner, and I'm on your side. That's the reality. Everything else is temporary. These are the words that Jesus invited us to pray. Now, what we're going to do right now is I'm going to, take some next steps with you. And then we're going to turn and I'm going to take you into my devotional time. All right. So would you grab out your connect card? Let's take a step or two. So once we get started into prayer, we won't be able, we we won't have to stop and turn kind of hard at the end. I want to give you right now a chance to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's possible I'm talking about being able to pray to our father and he's not yet your father in all the senses of that word. So if he's not the leader of your life, you can change that immediately. He can become your savior and your Lord, the one who forgives and leads. Next step A says, today I'm making Jesus my savior and Lord. 
If you'd like to do that, check the box. Put the card in the offering bucket and pray with me in a minute in a way that says, God, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I need you to forgive me. I need the blood of Jesus applied to my life. And I want to follow you as the leader. Next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Second service, guys. We have two people getting baptized. Incredible stories of life change, of redemption. God, God's love reaching down and grabbing a hold and people responding to it. And if you haven't done that yet, if you have a question about it, check the box and we'll pray with you about it, all right? And we'll communicate with you about it. That's all you got to do is check the box. That starts the conversation. Now, next step C, I'm starting, corresponding with these three weeks, 21 days of prayer. And I'm wondering if anybody would like to do it with me. If you never prayed before, if you check this box, I'm going to send you my notes from today. And you can use what we're going to do in a minute as a model to pray. And if you don't know what to pray for, I'm going to fill that in for you real quick. Pray for me. Two big reasons. I need it, and you need the practice. All right? We're going to get two, two big things done. Pray for me. Just pray. Look, you don't have to pray for me. God, lead Ben. He needs it. All right? And you'll be right. Like, you'll be honest. Right? And then you'll learn kind of the voice of prayer for you as well. All right? And then we're also praying for our church, our families, our community, and our world. Next step, D, we've been talking uh, last week about the fact we're getting ready to uh, launch small groups in the fall. So if you want to host or lead a group, all you do is check the box and we communicate with you. You start the conversation. You get your questions answered to see if you want to do it just by checking the box. And the next step, E, we have a very special core rally coming up Sunday, August 27th. I'm not going to tell you all the deals, but this is one you don't want to miss. Um, there's something very special we're going to do. And if you'll check the box, we'll send you that in an email and uh, give you a chance to respond to it. All right? So would you take your steps? Would you put that aside? I'm going to kind of close up my notes here. Now, at home, I have a chair I sit in. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to grab a chair. Sometimes I, I will walk around when I pray, and <clears throat> first time I saw people walk around when they pray, I'm like, you're not doing it right. The posture is not as important so much as it is getting rid of distractions. And uh, I have my notes here from the Lord's Prayer just to kind of keep me focused. When I pray, I almost always have a Bible with me. Now, that's not when I'm praying like in the car or whatever. I'm talking about when I set aside time to pray, when I go to a certain place when I separate, like Jesus, in a solitary way to pray, and I have a journal with me. So this is the one I just started the other day. And I usually have a pen with me somewhere. Of course, not today. Um, you do. You have a pen. And now that I'm older, I have my glasses. So those are very important. Don't I look studious? All right. And so what I normally do is I sit down, I pull out my phone, and I start some worship music because I get distracted. And if I hear people getting up in the house, I wonder who it is and why they're not working already. And um, <laughs> you think I'm kidding and I'm not. Um, so I get distracted real easy, real easy. And so what I do is I sit some worship music for two reasons. One is it drowns out distraction for me and it helps me to focus on what I'm trying to do. So I picked one of my favorite worship songs. And uh, my, my phone's not here, but the guys in the back are going to play it for us. So guys, if you'll get that started for me. And now the challenge with worship music is, like, I'll set it too high and then I can't pray. So, 
I'll turn it down just a little. There we go. I tend to pray with my eyes open. As long as I have kind of a quiet spot. If not, I'll close my eyes. And that's, again, not to shut myself out, but so that I don't get distracted. I'm going to show you in the next, like, four or five minutes just kind of how to pray through this prayer. So I bow my head. And I start. And because my mentor taught me this way, it's typically the way I start. And if I'm not thinking, I'll do this to you when I pray for you. I start by saying, my father, thank you. Thank you that I can bow my head, come to you. I'm far away from you, but, but because you're powerful and great, you're close to me. God, I'm grateful that I get to be your son. You get to be my dad. grateful, Lord, that you are all that I need. You are, in fact, the Lord. You're the King of kings. No one's greater than you. There's never been a president, an emperor, a ruler, a potentate that has held your power, your ability, or your influence. There's no CEO. There's no military ruler. There's you. And what you want to happen, happens. I'm grateful, Lord, that you are my provider. You are Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. You have provided in Jesus all that I need. God, you know I forget that. I get nervous. But I acknowledge that you are my provider. And there's nothing you've called me to do that you won't provide for. You never give a vision that you don't send provision. I have all that I need in you, Jesus. All that I need to be a father to my kids, a husband to my wife, pastor to the church, a member of this world. I thank you, Lord, that you're my peace. You're the one that speaks calm into my life. Like on the boat when you said to the storm, peace be still. You still speak peace. I'm grateful, Lord, that in the storm I'm going through, you already know how this is going to be resolved. In fact, you're so comfortable, you can take a nap in the middle of it while I'm fretting. God, I pray that your peace would become my peace. That I'd learn to rest in the one who holds the whole world in his hands. I thank you, Lord, that you're my sanctifier. You've set me apart. You've called and given me a purpose. I didn't ask for it. You gave it to me. You gave me every gift and every ability I need to press into all that you called me to do. When you direct my steps, you lead me to a safe 
and good place. When I'm fearful, when I'm afraid, when I don't see the way, you light the path before me, one step at a time. God, help me to rest in the fact that the call is yours. All the roles I'm supposed to play, it's yours. And I'm just the steward of the opportunity you've given me. I praise you, Lord, that you are my victory. And there is no weapon formed against me that's going to prosper. You're going to clear the path. You're going to remove every obstacle. You're going to make the high places low. You're going to lift up the valley. You're going to make the crooked paths straight. So I walk and follow you in the path that you put in front of me. God, I want to take a moment to pray for those people that you put in my life to lead me. God, I lift up our president. I ask, Father, that you would grip his heart. That he would think your thoughts. That your wisdom would come to him in his thoughts, in his dreams, in his sleep, through his counselors, in his study, in his reflection. That his mind would move towards your thoughts. Pray for our Congress people, our governor. God, as they sit in those positions of authority, would you lead them? Would you guide them? Would you surround them with people who could speak wisdom to them? God, I pray for those people that you've put into my life who are lost. No, I won't do it here, guys, but this is where I fill in the names of the people that I'm praying for. And I just ask God to do anything to grip their hearts. Father, I know that uh, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. And I know that you have every provision, but the truth is, is I need things. And if you don't provide, we're not going to be able to accomplish all that you give us. So I ask, Father, for you to give us what we need. Father, would you move on people's hearts to invest in the work that you've called them to? Would you help our church family to be generous in our church and in their community? God, would you show us that we can't outgive you? Father, would you increase my income so that I could be even more generous to the work that you've called us to. Father, bless Jill. Give her favor with her boss. Help the company do well. Let them make a lot of money. Let it impact her bonus. God, we want to leverage all that we have, even temporary things like money to do your work. God, would you send us people who are in need so we can bless them, so we can be your hands extended to them? Would you give us eyes to see your priorities out of all the things we could do? Would you help us to see what you would have us do? God, give us our daily bread. Help us to get through what we need to get through today. Father, I pray. I pray against the temptations that come into my life. I remind myself, Lord, what Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully upon a woman. I pray the words Paul spoke to Timothy, Lord, that I will not be greedy. Money will not have my heart. It will not crowd out your work. 
I pray the words of Jesus, Lord, make me a servant, coming out to lord it over those over whom I have responsibility. Lord, keep me from temptation. Keep my words soft, my ears open. God, deliver me from every evil, that that I know of and any plan anyone has against the work that you called me to as a dad, as a pastor, as a husband. I want to be laser focused, God. No distractions. The work I'm doing is too important to get distracted by silliness. Lord, I want to acknowledge that you're powerful, you're great. No weapon, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. You're awesome, you're good. We give it to you all day today. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do right now, guys, is we're going to worship a little bit. Worship can be a form of prayer. You can pray to God. You can take that notebook home and you can, those notes from today, and you can spend a few minutes in prayer. You'll populate it with your stuff. I populate it with mine, and I spend a lot more time on the people that are in my life that God wants to work in, especially those that are lost. And you can do that too. And next week, I'm going to take you to another prayer in the Bible. We'll walk through it, and then you can pray that prayer as well.